welcome to the Logistics Tribe. I'm Boris Felgendreer, founder of the Logistics Tribe, and today we will take a deep dive into the topic of simultaneous localization and mapping, short SLAM. SLAM is a method used for autonomous vehicles, such as AMRs in logistics, for example, that lets you build a map and localize your vehicles in that map at the same time. It's one of those things that you should probably know about in more detail in order to understand how autonomous vehicles and logistics are able to do what they do. Today, we have a leading expert in this field on the podcast to give you a real deep dive into the world of SLAM. Cyril Stachnis is a full professor at the University of Bonn and heads the Photogrammetry and Robotics Lab. In his research, he focuses on probabilistic techniques for mobile robotics, perception and navigation. And the main application areas of his research are autonomous service robots, agricultural robots and self-driving cars. He has co-authored over 250 publications has won several Best Paper Awards and has coordinated multiple large research projects on the national and European level. This podcast episode is hosted by Marco Prügelmeier, himself a logistics robots expert and aficionado. Before we get started, a quick message from our great supporters at Grey Orange. Grey Orange and the German Logistics Association BVL will host a webinar together with the Danish homeware retailer Jysk. The topic of the webinar will be how flexible automation helped Jysk cope with the unexpected peaks during the pandemic and support their e-commerce growth. I will be moderating this webinar, so I'm really looking forward to it. The date is February 24th from 11 a.m. to noon CET. If you're interested, I will leave a link in the show notes. I hope to see you there. All right, and now on to the show. Enjoy. Hi, Cyril. Uh, welcome to the Logistics Tribe. Nice to have you here on the show. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this talk with you. I remember that we talked, uh, I don't know, probably several years ago about SLAM and, and technology and so on. And um, I just wanted to do that again and, and open it for our audience here at the Logistics Tribe mm -hmm. and to go uh, or to dive a little bit deeper into the topic of SLAM. Because SLAM, in my eyes, is really a growing technology or aspect or, or algorithm that is used in also logistics uh, environments. And that's why I think it really makes sense that we talk a little bit about SLAM. But first of all, is what is SLAM, <laughs> Cyril? Can, yeah. you, can you as a professor explain that also in simple words or yes. is it too complicated? <laughs> no, I will do my very best to do that. So actually, okay. SLAM stands for Simultaneous Localization and Mapping. Or the original term, which was, let's say, in parallel to SLAM, was actually CML, Concurrent Mapping and Localization. These were the two terms that were brought up initially, but SLAM simply sounded cooler, so people uh, stick to SLAM. <laughs> um, so what it basically does is that what you want to do is you want to build a map of the environments of your surroundings, and you want to localize yourself in this map, and you want to do that at the same point in time. That's basically what the problem is about. You can envision this as a kind of a small child waking up for the first time, opening his or her eyes, and then walking through the environment. So what this kid is doing, it will actually see what's around him or her. So whatever, mm -hmm. whatever, chairs, objects, walls around me. And it can walk and navigate through the environment and gets views of those objects from different locations, from different viewpoints. It can use this in order to estimate its own motion through the environment. And that's basically what a SLAM system is doing itself, um, doing on its own. So mm -hmm. we want to build a model of the environment. We call it a model. You can also call it a map. And we want to know where we are in that map while we are navigating. And this is this simultaneous. So we want to do that together, localization and mapping. 
Mm -hmm. And compared to existing systems, such as your SubNav device in your car, for example, this comes with a given map. So this map is basically there, and you just localize yourself in that map with a GPS signal, for example. But in SLAM, you really want to do the localization, but at the same point in time, build the map that you use in order to perform the localization. So mm -hmm. it's somewhat more challenging than localization on its own. Yeah, I like this analogy that you gave us with the child uh, looking around in the room. Uh, I actually had the same anal analogy. Uh, maybe we, we were talking back then about it. But I always thought that you must have the map before looking around so that you can basically calculate back where are you positioned in the room. But actually it's done at the same time, right? Yes, absolutely. So you really start without a map. You mm -hmm. don't know where you are and you just open your eye and try to build first a very local model. So you just, whatever, look to the right, look to the left and see what I see right of me and left of me. And mm -hmm. this starts to kind of grow a known map in your own mind. And mm -hmm. the more you walk around, the more you see, With, of course, a rough ego motion estimation, because if you make a step forward, you know, oh, I'm traveled probably a meter forward. And this gives you an idea when if you see the next object or something you've seen before, this allows you to estimate where you are relative to the other object. And uh, this allows you to build a map. And um, that's basically what SLAM does exactly in the same way. So you can really start without a map and navigate. It's the same if you think you... you Take a train and go to a different city, a place where you've never been before. You're walking out of the train station. You have no idea what that city looks like, where you are. And, but through yourself, walking through the environment and seeing things around you, you can build a mental map, um, roadmap, for example, about the surroundings of that, um, of that train station where you started, for example. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what SLAM is about. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Um, so the next question would be, what is it used for, actually, uh, in, in technology? I mean... Uh, of course, coming from logistics, uh, I'm a big fan of AMRs and I know that uh, we are using it there. But what else are the, the big use points of, of SLAM? So from my point of view, whenever you have a system which should do something on its own, you need to have an environment model. So whenever you have a system which, as you said, a mobile robot which navigates through the environment and should do this in autonomous fashion, um, mm -hmm. it needs to know where the system is and what the world around The robot looks like into you know, the task and this can be robots operating in warehouses we can see this with autonomous cars autonomous trucks which um, have the same problem that they need to solve just kind of the environment looks a little bit different but in the end it's more or less the same problem but you can also see this for other tasks if you think about um, ar applications or vr things or especially ar when you want to combine virtual objects in, for example, goggles that you're seeing with the real world around you. You need to estimate where you are, where those objects are. So if you have a virtual, whatever, a glass and put it on a real table, the system which kind of generates this image of the virtual glass sitting on a table, um, you need to know where that table is, uh, how, where you are posi positioned with respect to that table, you know, to give you the impression that this virtual glass is actually embedded mm -hmm. in the real world. And so there are a large number of applications like this. You can even think of movie making um, where you want to build a 3D model of a scene in order to then whatever mm -hmm. do some camera motions in post-production, um, which you may have not recorded before. So even there, people are trying to build up highly accurate models of the environment, which are photorealistic through typically using a lot of cameras, 
uh, sensors like laser range scanners in order to build real 3D models of the real world in a virtual scene to then generate new views, for example. So there are numerous applications, not just in robotics and logistics and autonomous driving, but also in a large number of other disciplines. Basically, whenever you have a system which either should do something on its own and act in an environment, or where you want to give an impression to the user on how the world looks like. You want to generate, for example, different views from viewpoints which you actually haven't seen, um, then those systems are also super useful. And how did uh, this algorithm actually evolve over time? Because to me, it almost looked like, um, I don't know, five or six or seven years ago, bam, it was there. Yeah. So, But uh, there, there must be uh, uh, something before that time. So uh, maybe you can give us a, a, a small overview on the timeline and, and how this did evolve also coming out of the universities and so on. Yeah, so actually it's much, much older than what you think. Um, mm -hmm. And even uh, so in the robotics community, it may came up in the late 80s, 90s, but it's actually much, 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 much older. So I would actually date it back 200 years to Carl Friedrich Gauss, who was actually performing SLAM by hand. And what Gauss was doing in between 1820 and 1826 was actually measuring the kingdom of Hanover. And he, what he was basically doing, he had distinct objects in the world, like uh, the tower of a church and other real landmarks, and was measuring distances and angles between those landmarks, and was mm -hmm. using this in order to measure the kingdom of Hanover. And this was the first application of a slam system, um, just basically done by hand, and the computations have been really, really complex. You need a lot of people doing all the matrix inversions and solving mm -hmm. linear systems, which, is, which was involved in there. Um, but basically, it is a very, very similar technique to what we are using today. So if you would ask me, I would say SLAM is more or less 200 years old. Oh, of course, wow. done by hand. I would never have imagined that. Yeah. <laughs> and even if you go back, whatever, to 1880s, so even something which is very, very far away for us, mm -hmm. um, people like Helmer, they built super advanced systems in order to simplify computations, stuff which is surprisingly advanced and can be used in computers today to make systems sparser, so easier to solve from a mathematical point of view, because they were really suffering because they had to do all that by hand. So whatever, every iteration of your SLAM algorithm took them half a year to do, to compute manually, inverting huge matrices and stuff like this. And of course, mm -hmm. they invested a lot of brain power. How can we do this better? How can we parallelize stuff? Things which are again, or became really important over the last years in, uh, in robotics and other communities. So we probably solved or oh, saved 20, to 20 years of development in SLAM and robotics if we actually have gone back to Gauss and Helmert and have, would have done that <laughs> stuff properly. <laughs> Retrospectively, I can clearly say that. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. So, but then there was some kind, anyway, some kind of a breakthrough, like, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, because then it became really popular. So what was the reason for that? I would even say it was around 2000, 2002, mm -hmm. this time um, when SLAM was becoming more and more popular. Uh, what, at least from an academic point of view, this was a case that a couple of people in Europe, especially so um, Henrik Christensen and others organized uh, what is called the SLAM Summer School, where they were bringing young PhD students all over Europe together, organizing these events in, in large exchange. And this has made a big change that more and more people got interested in that problem. Um, it was there in the robotics community probably since the beginning of the 90s or late 80s first works, but it was a fairly small community. And I would say around 2000, it became more and more popular. And this was also a point in time where probably open source software became more popular, mm -hmm. at least in the robotics community. 
And so people were starting to publish their systems as open source. And at that point in time, you put in years of development into building a first SWAM system. And um, there have been very interesting works coming out around 2002 to 2005, maybe, where the first really operational SLAM system have been shipped, which are still in use today in a lot of applications and a lot of open source systems are actually algorithms which date back from whatever, 2005. And this was probably a big boost then. And then we were kind of experimenting around how can we improve our algorithms, so on and so forth. And then probably around 2010, maybe, maybe a little bit earlier, um, we actually moved back to the original ideas that Gauss already had. Before we were looking into other techniques, so we didn't use the least squares approach, which Gauss was proposing. We went into things like Kalman filters or particle filters, so other mm -hmm. recursive state estimation techniques in order to solve that problem. But with having more compute and being able to do mathematical operations very fast, having good mathematics tools or libraries around which can solve certain systems more efficiently or, more, or faster, um, we actually reverted back to the least squares ideas. And a lot of some systems out there today um, are based on the least squares idea. And um, then things matured, systems have been released. They're basically, I would say, three optimization systems which are out there, which are used today in SLAM systems, or at least cover the majority of them. Uh, they became more robust. And this then gave other people the chance to build up SLAM systems easier. And this is where things exploded. And then um, you need autonomous cars driving around. You want to build large-scale maps, also maps which users could manipulate or change which these base squares approach allowed you to do better than other techniques before. Um, and yeah. Why? Because of the calculation power, Cyril? Or um, what is the reason? The reason is a different one. So the least squares approach is typically an offline approach. So you get all your data together and you mm -hmm. solve the system and get the best possible result out. Originally, that took years, the computations, and therefore it really took too long. Mm -hmm. And people looked into techniques where you do this kind of, we call it the sequential state estimation. So that means you're trying to reuse your result and always just add the next sensor reading to it. And in those systems, it's much harder to change something. So if you as a user realize, oh, the system actually did a good job, but made a mistake at one particular place in the environment, it's very hard to fix this in filtering techniques. In the least squares mm -hmm. approach, you actually have all the data at hand and you can actually go back and delete some constraints in an optimization problem, then magically all, everything falls into place because you as a user eliminated the mistake of the system. And mm -hmm. um, this is more due to that, that the system allows for an easier um, user interaction, let's say it that way. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, this has to do with the underlying calculations, but also the way the data is used or processed in that, such systems. Maybe we, um, as, as we have you here as a, as a professor, uh, maybe we can even dive in into the, the problematic a little bit more or the solution yeah. of the problematic. Um, you already mentioned the, the least squares approach of Gauss yep. uh, being kind of a fundamental approach to it. Yeah. I imagine also that there are probably more than one type of slam, that there are multiple slams. Maybe yes. we can go first into that and then take a little bit of a closer look on how does one simple slam really work. Okay. Can we do yeah. that? Absolutely. So if you want to categorize the slam systems which are out there, I would probably open up four categories. And so if I look from the, and I don't go into the kind of really old school Gauss stuff, I start with whatever, what the robotics community has done. Mm -hmm. And then most of the initial people um, around Udon White and people like this, they started with using Kalman filters. 
So a well-known state estimation techniques that were using a lot of applications since the 1950s, you know, to do this recursive state estimation. And that was kind of the standard approach for, for several years. So what categorizes this type of approaches, it is based on the Kalman filter or an extended Kalman filter, so certain variants. Everything is assumed to be a Gaussian distribution and you're best off living in a linear world, so having no nonlinear functions in your system, which is highly unrealistic in real-world situations. But kind of that's how, um, that's the assumption that those systems actually make most of the time. Um, and um, so this was one group of approaches. They work well under good conditions um, for limited application, limited space, and not, if not, the environment is not too huge. They actually work quite well and things like um, harbors in Australia um, are completely operated by cranes which are running on extended Kalman filters um, for doing mm -hmm. this task. Um, so that's so one, one, one question. Yeah. I always uh, connect Kalman filters with uh, different sensor inputs. Is that right? Is that something that they are also used or uh, am I wrong on that? Um, I'm thinking you're wrong to some degree on that. So these okay. actual sensor observation is fairly independent from the underlying system, uh, state estimation system. So what you always have in the end, you need to turn your sensor data into something that the state estimation systems can use. So if you think of a camera, we typically extract features in the environment, things like SIFT features or SURF or all the variant of different features which are out there. And that basically means you're looking for distinct points in, the, in, in your image, for things like corners, for example, things you can recognize really well. And then or you basically- Columns in, in the logistics world. Yes, exactly. In, so yeah. certain things that you can identify well in your image. That's the only thing which matters. You need to be able to, to identify them well in your image and always spot the same location in an image. And um, then you're basically just estimating the location of these points and your own position with respect to those points in the 3D world. And this is something that the Kalman filter can do really well. Um, mm -hmm. And there are other techniques out there when you build kind of like floor plan-like maps. So you've seen this probably if you have a laser scanner and you're not extracting those, those features, but you're basically building what we call an occupancy grid map. That's basically like a floor plan map. So if you, if you mm -hmm. buy a new house, you get a floor plan and these sensors basically generate maps which look like that. And they yeah. are much harder to integrate into a Kalman filter because you don't have these distinct landmarks in there. Um, but there are still ways how you can at least do that to some degree. So in this sense, yes, the kind of sensor data that you're using to represent your environment matters, but it's less dependent on the state mm -hmm. estimation technique than it probably sounds for most people. You need to abstract it to some degree, but then you can actually deal with this. Mm -hmm. Okay, got and it. And so this so kind of the first group of approaches. Mm -hmm. And then the second group of approaches was coming up. Um, this was pioneered by, well, the original ideas came by Baidusi and others, and then Mike Montemello and also Giorgio Grisetti have been pioneers in the particle filter-based SLAM systems, where you get rid of the idea that everything must be a Gaussian distribution, all the errors and things like this, and you can go to a non-parametric representation, allowing you multimodal distributions. So you can say, either I'm in street one or I'm in street two, but I know I'm nowhere else. This is things that, something you cannot represent with a Gaussian belief, um, but you can do with a particle filter-based belief. And this has led to a new generation of SLAM system, the most prominent one from the research perspective is probably FASM and from the usability perspective G-mapping, um, which is also an idea of FASM but building grid maps and it's probably one of the most used 2D SLAM algorithms today. ROS and a lot of other components basically use the original implementation of G-mapping from 2004-2005. And um, this has the great advantage that you get rid of this Gaussian uh, world assumption and it also allows you to deal better with some non-linearities that you have. 
On the downside, um, you, it's quite memory and computationally expensive um, and um, also kind of yeah, has some limitations in the amount of uncertainty you can represent. So if you think about a system which is localized fairly well and can track its pulse really well, the particle filter does an outstanding job. If you're in environments where you have huge uncertainty, let's say I know I'm in um, Munich right now, but I have no idea where I'm in Munich. The uncertainty that you need to represent with particles uh, becomes untractable in, in such large uncertainty setups. And therefore, um, for example, for a GPS localization system, the particle filter would not be a good idea. Um, but for most robotics applications, the particle filter does a really good job. And that's kind of the second category of systems, which are still in place today, still a standard choice. But if you build a new SLAM system, you would probably not start with a particle filter today anymore. And then the third group of approaches is the least squares approaches, which then became popular again. This kind of dates back to Gauss and all the ideas um, mm -hmm. using sparse matrices. So basically matrices which contain a lot of zeros and that makes them easier to, to solve if you solve your linear system. Um, and the whole idea of least squares. And that became really popular and most systems which are out there use least square slam today. Mm -hmm. The fourth category of systems are kind of learning-based approaches. Um, again, deep learning has impacts on a lot of different disciplines. Although I would I haven't seen the big breakthrough for SLAM, at least not for the core SLAM idea. So there are certain things you can really do well with the learning systems, but other things I think the learning approach is not the right way to go. Especially if we are able to formulate and solve a problem mathematically in a, I don't want to say closed form solution, but have a really good idea on how to do that. And we have that for least squares. We're doing this since 200 years. It doesn't make much sense from my point of view to, to run it on a learning algorithm, train the learning algorithm to do the matrix multiplication you can actually specify the correct solution with. This doesn't make much sense to me. There are, however, other parts in the SLAM problem where learning helps a lot for exactly those parts which you can't, can't formulate, formulate uh, or formalize that well. Things like, is an image A equal to an image B? Data associations. Um, so interpreting the sensor data, their learning is great. And so it's probably the combination of learning together with one of the existing techniques, such as least squares, um, so which you probably use where I see the future. So it's combining learning stuff for stuff you can't formalize well mathematically, and then um, using the kind of traditional least squares-like approaches for system that you know, for the part that you can actually write down mathematically and know how to solve them. And that's mm -hmm. probably the last category. Um, where probably the, the new generation of SAM systems will all fall into this category. Mm -hmm. And the last one that you mentioned is fairly new now, right? It's, it's only, I don't know, the last 10 years probably. Yeah, that's or, true. So okay. especially all the deep learning stuff basically came over from, or from machine learning, computer vision, and then into the robotics community, maybe started 2012, something like this. The first really successful deep learning approaches on image data and um, thought they're becoming more and more popular to solve certain aspects of this. But kind of the core thing that we call typically SLAM is still the least squares ideas. It's just kind of how to turn the data which comes from our camera or laser scanner mm -hmm. into a format that the least square system can actually exploit it to its best. Uh, that's still where the learning plays or, or where I see learning playing a big role. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So all those are four different types of, of SLAM. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I have one question because I was assuming that you are coming up with the types uh, 2D SLAM and 3D SLAM, but actually all of these four types can be applied in a 3D world or in a 2D world, or can you add some knowledge to that? Yes, absolutely. So in the end, this is all 
all the techniques I presented are basically state estimation techniques. So this falls into the category of estimating a parameter, which refers to a state like where is the robot right now, and your state vector could be a three-dimensional saying x location, y location, and an orientation theta, for example, where the robot is looking to. This would be the mm -hmm. 2D world. You need a 3D vector to represent that. Or you go to a 3D environment where you have x, y, z, and then a yaw pitch roll angle. So basically three angles where you're looking to and where are you would be a 6D vector. Mm -hmm. And the underlying state estimation system, for them, it's actually pretty irrelevant if you are estimating a 3D vector or a 6D vector. I mean, of course, mm -hmm. 60 is more variables. Um, it's a bit more complex, but in the end, more it doesn't make a big difference from the calculation from the mass point of view. It's very mm -hmm. similar, let's say, that way. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So interesting. So uh, you mentioned the least square approach is yep. basically the, the, yeah, the foremost SLAM algorithm that is out there. Mm -hmm. So maybe if we dive into that one, so how, how would it calculate in... It's it's hard to explain. Uh, uh, maybe we can try to explain it in uh, not going too deep, but so that we understand the basic algorithm. Okay, yeah, absolutely. So what those systems do, I'm now looking to something which is called the post graph, which is a simplified representation that you use for solving a least squares problem or slam with a least squares problem. And be because it's very easy to understand actually how that works. What you're doing in a post graph, you're building up a graph um, of poses. That's what the name is. So what is a graph and what's a pose? A pose is the location of the robot together with its orientation. So this 3D or 6D vector I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And you want to represent this for every point in time. So let's say every second you store where the robot right now and where is it looking to. So every mm -hmm. second you will add a 6D vector to your state estimation problem that you want to solve. Okay, so... What you have is the longer you, you travel through an environment, the more of those poses you accumulate. And you can see this, you're walking through your favorite city, wherever you are, you start at the train station, you walk towards the um, whatever cathedral. So every few meters, you will create one of those poses um, representing the trajectory that you're actually taking. Okay, the problem is what do you put into those variables? And um, so what's the position where you are? Let's say you're at the train station, say, I close my eyes, I open my eyes and say, I'm at the center of my own world. My coordinate frame is zero, zero, zero. That's where I'm starting right now. And let's start from here. And then you say, okay, uh -huh. I walk, you're, you know, you're, you're walking forward, you know, every step is maybe a meter. And let's say every three meters, you create one of those new poses. And you know, okay, my second pose is probably three meters away from my first pose. And mm -hmm. the third pose is again, three meters away from the previous pose. So what you're adding is basically constraints between those variables. So you say, okay, this position should be three meters away from the other position. And maybe at some point in time you're turning, say, okay, I do a right turn, probably a 90 degree turn or more or less. Um, so I should have a 90 degree turn and then walk again three meters. So all this information is not perfect. It's noisy because your step length is not precisely a meter. Sometimes it's mm -hmm. 95 centimeters, sometimes it's a meter 20. Um, and so it's never, never, nothing is perfect in here. And therefore we call them soft constraints. And you're basically collecting those soft constraints. And um, it now becomes interesting when you do something what we call a loop closure or close a loop. So you're walking through your environment and at some point in time you just, oh, I'm back at the train station. I was mm -hmm. here before. And then you can say, okay, I'm now in front of the train station where I've been before, so I know I can add an additional constraint that the place where I'm right now is exactly the place where I started. 
And then you basically create constraints between non-consecutive poses, so places you've been before. And this is what we call place revisiting or loop closing, where you're back at a place where you've been before. You say, ah, I realize I'm here. Let's add a constraint. And this adds more constraints to your, to your optimization problem or at least stress problem that you're then solving. And this is the whole ingredient. And what you're then trying to do is say, okay, in this least square problem, you say, what is these constraints that I actually added to my system? You, you, you collect all of them and then say, how do I need to change the positions? How do I shift them around a little bit? Let's say, can I push this position a meter forward or this a meter backwards so that the error, so the kind of the disagreement of the constraints gets smaller and smaller. And so the least squares approach that you're doing is you're basically trying to find a configuration of these nodes of the post graph that the error which is introduced by these constraints is as small as possible. So you want to find the configuration so that all the constraints agree as, as good as possible. And um, this is, can be a very, very large um, problem because if you think for every second you add whatever three dimensions to your state vector, you're traveling for an hour, you will have a very high dimensional state vector with a lot of constraints. And um, so finding thousands or millions of parameters can be computationally expensive. But that's yeah. what the least squares problem actually solves. Mm -hmm. And so you have those constraints from just walking forward, what I told you, that's what probably wheel odometry would be on a robot. Yeah. So basically you're counting the revolutions of your wheels. Let's see, now you're in a car, so you have something which we call an Ackermann drive, or you have another mobile robot, which is a differential drive, other times of, 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 of physics of the platform. This gives you mm -hmm. an idea how much the, the platform moved. But additionally, you also have a sensor on board with which you see the environment. This could be a camera, a laser range scanner. Or a and, LiDAR. Or a LiDAR, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then you're actually generating constraints between those LiDAR observations. So you're saying, what I'm seeing right now, this 3D local 3D model that I've generated from one position looks actually very, very similar to the 3D local 3D model of a place where I've been 20 minutes ago. Oh, that's probably the same place. And then you can also add those constraints from based on the observations that you're generating. And therefore, you will get the more sensor information you have, the more of those constraints you will get. And it could also be that the scan matching, so aligning laser scans tells you, you moved a meter 20 forward, and, and your, your step counter says, oh, it was probably a meter. So you have two constraints which disagree. And depending how much you trust your step length or your laser scanner, you can say, ah, I weigh the laser scanner a bit better than my step length, so I trust the mm -hmm. laser scanner more. And can trade off the information that these different observations provide. And this makes it, again, more complicated, but then you can come up with optimal or near-optimal solutions to the SLAM problem if you take all that into account in your, in your SLAM system. But that's basically mm -hmm. how it works. You need to turn your observations mm -hmm. and constraints or observation pairs, to be precise, into those constraints. And then in the end, um, solve uh, a soft uh, constraint problem or least squares problem where you minimize the squared error just because it's easy to do <laughs> with a squared error. And that's, mm -hmm. that's exactly what you're doing. Okay, so if we take this explanation now back to the logistics world, mm -hmm. we would have an, an AGV or an AMR. Yep. Uh, and as you said already, this machine would be equipped with odometry so that it would count the steps basically, yep. but very small steps on mm -hmm. the wheel. Yeah. Yep. So this is one sensor input. And then you have your LiDAR typically yep. that you also use for your safety so yep. that you stop if something is in, in front. But you also see your environment mm -hmm. just in 2D typically. Yeah. Um, but um, you use these 2D scans and you also put it into the least square so solution mm -hmm. or uh, algorithm. Yeah? Yes. And 
to some degree try. only. So there I have mm -hmm. to make a small correction. So what you're not putting mm -hmm. into this least squares problem is actually the raw LiDAR skin. Mm -hmm. What you're actually doing typically is you basically, you have this pose and you attach to this pose the laser scan. You say, okay, th at this pose, I got this laser scan. And once you're finding a similarly looking laser scan, because the new laser scan comes in and say, okay, I have seen a laser scan which looks like this already in the past. And then you say, okay, the laser scan that I've seen 20 minutes ago and the laser scan I'm seeing right now, they're very similar. I can align them and use what's mm -hmm. called a scan matching algorithm. So mm -hmm. it's in fact the iterative closest point algorithm or mm -hmm. probably generalized ICP it would be the standard choice that you would use today to align those. And if you can align them, you say, okay, I can align them. They look really similar. What you then know is the location where I've taken the scan right now has a certain offset from the position where I took the scan 20 minutes ago. Let's say, oh, you're three meters to the right, one meter to the um, forward and 20 degrees rotated just from the recording position. And this gives you exactly one of those constraints that goes into the least squares problem and this mm -hmm. which, which connect mm -hmm. the poses. So in the end, you're not really storing the or using the laser scans in itself in the least squares problem, but the constraints that you can generate from those, um, from yeah. those laser scans. And that's a, mm -hmm. a great and important difference. Why? Mm -hmm. Because in the end, you can abstract the sensor data away from the underlying state estimation problem. In the end, you don't care if it's a 2D LiDAR or 3D LiDAR or a LiDAR combined with a camera or an RGBD mm -hmm. camera, whatever it is. As soon as you can generate those constraints by something like scan matching or something like image matching, mm -hmm. you don't need to change your underlying algorithm or only to a very, very limited degree to take this information into account. Mm -hmm. And even in the kind of vehicle world, you probably would have a GPS. So how does a GPS comes into the game now? Um, let's say you have a GPS, but your GPS has an uncertainty of whatever, 20 meters or so. Um, you're, or even somewhere in your city block, maybe even longer. If you're in Venice and the streets are super narrow, you're easily off by 300 meters, for example. Mm -hmm. And then you can add still soft constraints saying, oh, the place where I'm right now should be at that GPS location at this longitude latitude, but probably you have an uncertainty of 300 meters. So you allow the least square system to basically push the, cons the pose around, but only in this 300 meter range, because you know I know where I am roughly, but not precisely, and you can combine this, these different sensing modalities. So you can add GPS, you can add IMUs, mm -hmm. you can add LIDARs, you can add cameras, whatever you have to your system, but you're still totally fine with just the LIDAR and just plain odometry. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, um, very interesting. Um, Now I actually have to admit for the first time I really fully understand how, how this can, can oh, work. Oh, great. Thanks. <laughs> so thank you very much for that. Um, but one question is left for the um, first iteration, because usually what we do with AMRs is that we drive around and take the first map of the building or mm -hmm. of the uh, logistics environment there. And we have to do that to find Is this actually the, the input that you need for the scan matching algorithm so that you can find the, uh, the differences in the, in the pose or, or what, what, why do we need that? Okay, we need this. So if you have perfect odometry or nearly perfect odometry, then we wouldn't need scan matching in the first place. Um, so we would, could just trust the revolutions of the wheels in order to know where we are. But the problem with sure, this... But we is, don't have that because yeah, we have slippage, exactly. we have, uh, um, I don't know, drifting yeah. or whatever. Exactly, the drift yeah. mm -hmm. kills us. And mm -hmm. therefore, we say, okay, the good thing about the laser scanner is it's typically a pretty accurate sensor, so it provides really good distance measurements. 
Um, and therefore, if we align them, we get an idea on how much the platform has moved according to the laser scanner. So it's an independent measurement of that position or of this relative position. And this provides us with this additional information. So what you said, typically, initially, you built your first map of the environment. Um, I would actually disagree and say this is already the key part of the SLAM problem that you're actually doing. Um, mm -hmm. And their scan matching, of course, is a key ingredient because the scan matcher provides you typically an initial guess. So you basically run scan matching, and this is kind of the first starting point for your optimization problem. So it's the initial configuration that you, that you store in all those different nodes, what your scan matcher has told you. And then you start shifting them around in order to try to find a globally better solution than what the, SLAM, uh, the scan matcher has done. Because scan matcher is really incremental, so it will also drift over time. And through this global component, you can actually compensate this drift. So the scan mm -hmm. matching is still basically finding the initial guess for your SLAM system. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, generally speaking, uh, what are the good, the, the big advantages for AMRs and logistics uh, uh, vehicles using SLAM? Okay. Um, I would even say you can't really do it well without SLAM because in the end you need a map of the environment. So the question is how do you get your map? Either the human provides a map because you have a robot which operates in a warehouse, the warehouse has been precisely measured once, nothing will change, everything stays the same, then fine, don't use SLAM. Ship that pre-built, expert-built map to all your robots and let your robots run with this. In reality, this typically fails because your environment will change. Nothing will stay exactly yeah. the same all the time. And you need to take those changes into account. Otherwise, your system will get delocalized in those locations because they just basically trust the observations and take the map as God-given. But maybe a new shelf is installed in your warehouse or... Um, Things are moved away because you have a bigger forklifts and they operate, whatever it is, you will have changes over time. And yeah. those changes need to be taken into account. So your map will get outdated and you may still want to run a SLAM system to, to check if the map that the SLAM system builds is actually the same one than the map before, the, the, the given map. And maybe just suggest changes to an operator saying, hey, I think something has changed here in this area. Can we actually or should we take this additional change into account and update the maps of all robots? That's something that you do and maybe you want to have an operator in there to check if this is actually correct in order to whatever, make your fleet of robots diverge just because one mm -hmm. robot made a mistake. Um, so this is something that you typically want to do. Um, and, um, but there are other situations where the environment is not really like that. Um, so even if you think about your own home and you have a, a, a robot that cleans your floor, You can do this in a very stupid way without a map, without SLAM, just saying do random walk. So the first um, robots which were cleaning your floor were basically doing a random walk. So you saw those systems running completely weird uh, uh, through random patterns, basically through the environment until they bump something, they do a random turn and continue. Works pretty well, actually, especially for hoovering. Um, but if you now want to have a more systematic cleaning um, and maybe you want to have um, a wet wipe where you don't want to have random mm -hmm. walks because you see it on your floor, you want to have this systematically done. And then you need a map of the environment and then you need a slam system because in my apartment, whatever, kids have stuff lying around, chairs will be rearranged, um, whatever, a couch table is moved a bit from <laughs> one week to another. And this is a change in the environment. So those systems basically need to run slam or at least a local slam most of the time as well. Or at least mm -hmm. initially, you, you need to build a map of the environment. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you cannot navigate well. The same holds for, think about navigating with a car through a city. If you don't have a map of the environment and you don't have a satnav and you don't have a model and you have no means to build up your mental model, your internal brain slam, 
um, oh, then it's a pretty hard time to, you can just go basically via direction. Say, okay, I think I'm driving the thousand direction of the sun and hope I reach my <laughs> destination. And if you want to do better than that, if you want to do systematic class planning, you need a map and SLAM basically provides you with that map. Okay, so big advantages uh, or even uh, it's, it's basically necessary yes, to absolutely. have it. Um, but on the other hand, what's, what's the other side? Uh, what can go wrong? Um, I, I heard of things that um, like, for example, buildings are getting so huge and so big uh, and are so um, repetitive. Like you have a column every... 10 mm -hmm. meters and nothing is really there uh, to have a distinction. Am I now at column 15 or column 26? Huh? Yeah. So this might cause problems. Or uh, as you said, if you have really bigger spaces that really rearrange, is that can that be a problem? Yes. Or what, what do you think about that? Yes, absolutely. So there are different things which can go wrong. So in the, in the even the static setting, so if the environment doesn't really change, um, you have this repetitive structure, for example. And this is what we call a data association problem. So you need to associate your current observation to one of those previous observations. And if you think about you have a highly repetitive environment like an empty hospital where all the, um, the, the patient rooms look basically identical because they are built exactly the same way. If the robot is inside one of those rooms, it can say, yes, I'm in the center of the room, but I have no idea in which room I actually am, yeah. unless it can read whatever um, door signs or something like this. So it's a good way to actually fix that problem. Um, mm -hmm. But if, if you do, we don't have that uh, capability to read door signs, it's highly um, ambiguous. So you don't know where you are. You know you're in the middle of the room, but it could be room one, room two, room three, room four, and so on. And so this makes a data association problem challenging. What really helps there is having good odometry. So you better your odometry, the more you can trust your odometry and can eliminate a, a, most of these ambiguities just by knowing, I know my odometry is actually pretty good. And that's actually one way how it's done, solved in practice fairly often that you trust your odometry to, to some degree. Um, the other thing that you could do is you could go back to a location where you know you can localize well. Let's say you have... Mm -hmm. um, a building where you have one central place and then a lot of corridors connecting this with all rooms. So from time to time, it makes sense to go back to the central area for the robot to localize itself well and kind of to disambiguate um, the observations. That's one way. Mm -hmm. The other thing you can do is a lot of those optimization systems, so these least square stuff, um, you can also do tricks in there to deal with mistakes. We call dealing with outliers, so wrong data associations. Um, and um, so there are some techniques how you can take into account that something is potentially an error and that you basically don't, don't wait so much. And this also makes your systems much, much more robust and can deal with this. So this is one track of research um, dealing with better data associations, which is still under investigations, also research at universities, but also at companies. And the second big thing is really dynamic environments. What happens if the world around you is not static? That's something which mm -hmm. is key for autonomous driving, but still there you have GPS information most of the time and a pretty good incremental estimate that you don't increase your uncertainty too much over time. But if you think about indoor environments, we don't have this global positioning system, which can help you at least to eliminate a lot of the potential ambiguities, um, then this is harder and robots operating in really crowded spaces. Um, this is still a challenge. And um, how to represent spaces? How do you represent common changes? So sometimes you have changes which are not highly dynamic, but people moving things around. Think of a warehouse, which is completely empty initially. And then a truck comes, a lot of pallets are un up unloaded, put anywhere. For the robot, just having a 2D laser scanner, the world looks very, very different. And how do you take that into account? How do you incorporate this in your map? 
but still don't invalidate the other maps. So what are actually good representations for dynamic environments, for maybe even the environments which have a changing structure, but some typical repetitive pattern. So there's still a lot of research which is going on in this direction or needs to go on because I think we don't have really a solution which can really deal with changing environments in a very robust manner. So are those actually the, the newest research uh, directions that SLAM is going? So getting out things like that that you mentioned um, and the second one incorporating or using uh, machine learning or, or AI where it's necessary or where it helps. Yeah. Uh, are those the, the main path that it's going now or it's, yeah. what else are you actually uh, researching on and yeah we are uh, we are still working on this data association problem and here learning plays a big role so your learning systems can actually allow you to make better data associations or come up with better hypotheses because mm -hmm. it's a problem which is very hard to formulate how similar are two images I mean, you can compare pixel values but if you're not the same viewpoint mm -hmm. it's actually a hard thing to do and um, so this is where learning helps um, for getting better data, data associations um, we are also learning, um, trying to combine pure geometry and semantics. So putting meaning to things, knowing that something you see is a door, is a chair, is a table, is a couch. So combining this geometric estimation with semantic estimation. And as soon as you go into the semantic world, you need to have learning algorithms because that's the only way to, to, to learn whatever that looks like, a chair that looks like um, whatever, a bed that looks like a couch. And integrating this into SLAM systems. This is also one track of research that we are doing, dealing with objects, having basically an object-based SLAM system that you take objects in the environment into account, also something that we as humans partially use. So we have an idea what objects are typically moving, which objects are typically static, um, and we rely to the static ones. So if you walk through a city, it's better to localize based on buildings than on cars. And um, this is something that you can also give to, to autonomous robots if they have an awareness of what they're actually seeing and make their systems mm -hmm. more robust. And still, the dynamic environment representation is, from my point of view, still the thing which is most unclear because we don't have a good model, at least from my point of view, that would solve all those problems. Well, very interesting, Cyril. Thank you very much for uh, giving us some guidance on SLAM and the technology beneath it, behind it. Um, and I hope it was also interesting uh, for our audience, our logistics audience. And um, thank you very much, Cyril. Oh, it was my pleasure to be here and uh, it was great talking to you. Whenever you want to dive deeper into SLAM, call me, come back to me. I'm happy to help out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one can really feel uh, your, uh, uh, the, the, the fun that you have playing around with stuff like that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. That was a very nice deep dive into the topic of SLAM and logistics. I hope you learned as much as I did. If so, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of the future episodes of the Logistics Tribe. Thanks for listening. I'm Boris Felgandrea. Until next time.